You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Dorothea Benton Frank, author of 17 novels, many of them New York Times bestselling books. She's a contemporary voice of the South and is beloved from coast to coast, thanks to those bestselling books that include All the Single Ladies, The Hurricane Sisters, The Last Original Wife, Porch Lights, Folly Beach, Sullivan's Island, and Plantation. Dorothea joins me today to talk about her new book, All Summer Long, publishing by William Morrow on May 31st. Welcome, Dorothea. Thank you so much. So All Summer Long is the story of a New York couple, interior designer Olivia Ritchie and her husband Nicholas Seymour, who's an English professor and a Southern gentleman. So we meet them as they prepare to relocate from New York City to Charleston, South Carolina. Olivia has reservations about the promise she made to retire in the Low Country, and Nick is really happy to be returning home to lead a more peaceful life. Also in this mix is the fact that the couple's finances that are managed by Olivia are in really bad shape, but she's not yet shared that with Nick. So what would you do in this situation? Well, Nick and Olivia spend the hot summer with some of Olivia's billionaire clients. They go from Sullivan's Island to Necker Island to Nantucket and the beaches of southern Spain. You'll have to read all summer long to find out what happens, but I can ask a few questions to the author. So tell us a little bit more about your protagonist, Olivia. She's, she's really not one to have bought a copy of uh, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, right? No, no, she definitely has not. She's almost a hoarder. I mean, you know, but she uses all of her things for inspiration, so she hates to give things up. You know, she has pretty classic taste. She's not into, you know, mid-century modern. She's into, you know, old Italian and French antiques, and, and she's a bit of an Anglophile like her husband is. And, um, you know, so she keeps things. She keeps things, whether it's a scarf or an old brooch. You know, you never know where inspiration is going to come from when you're designing wallpaper and fabric, right? So yeah. That's and, why. And tell us about Nick. What what makes Nick tick? Well, he's just charming. He's just completely charming. He's just a lovely guy who's fascinated by history and collects old maps. And he's kind of an Oscar Madison. He's a bit of a fuddy-duddy, you know, and he's a little bit of a mess. And Olivia's always straightening him out. And, you know, he lives in his head. And she very much lives in the real world. So that's why she manages all their money, and he's perfectly happy to let her do that, as she always has, because she's very concerned about having control over everything, and he doesn't really care. So as long as everything is going along okay, until they don't. They're sort of an opposite attracts kind of couple. So what do you think? Absolutely. What do you think is the secret to a happy marriage? Two houses. (laughs) (laughs) no i mean what i mean i've been married for a really 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 long time and you know my husband travels for business and i travel for business and so i think that not seeing each other 24 hours a day every single day of the week and year is um you know surely you, you look forward to each other coming home right so that's it i think i think a little distance is good i also think low expectations i mean i don't think you have to have low expectations but you know you shouldn't expect somebody else to come in and complete you and take completely take care of you 
Yeah, exactly. Very, I I knew you'd have a good naive. answer because I was aware of your long marriage. So I thought, I well, gee, I'll take the opportunity to talk <laughs> about your fiction and then get a little life advice as well. So similarly, similarly, why do you think that some women feel so uncomfortable, even threatened by the idea of stepping back and slowing down? What do you think that's about? Stepping back and slowing down. You know, I think that the aging process to begin with is very peculiar. And I think it's very different for my generation than it was for my mother's generation. I mean, my mother turned 50 and she sat down and waited to die. You know, I mean, she thought that was it. 50 was really old and I'm in my sixties and, you know, I don't feel like I should sit down and get ready to die at all. I'm just like, you know, something hurts. And I go, what the heck is this? You know, oh, it's arthritis. Oh, okay, we'll put a cream on it. Take an aspirin, you know, deal with it. Right. Um, you know, I think my generation expects to live a lot longer. And with that comes staying in the game. You know, that means you continue to work. I mean, I don't know hardly anyone who can afford to retire these days. I mean, how can you afford to retire? So you keep working, you know, as long as you can, because it also keeps you alive and, and vital and interesting and keeps you interested in life as well. Right. So I think we have a, a very different point of view about getting out of the game right. today than we did. You know, and, and Nick, my, my protagonist, my male protagonist, he's not worried about getting out of the game at all. Because getting out of the game for him means that he can just retreat further into his head, which is his favorite place to be anyway. Right. You know, but for her, she's not only getting out of the game, she's moving to Charleston, South Carolina. And, oh, my God, what is that? You know, I mean, she's been there a million times because, you know, that's where Nick's from. So they would go to visit family and friends and so forth over the years. But but to live there, you know, she's no longer living in, in midtown Manhattan and she's a big interior designer. Who's going to hire her if she's living on some dinky little island off the coast of Charleston? They'll just simply call somebody else in New York. Right. Right. And so that's that's her great fear. She she fears that by living up to her commitment to Nick to go to Charleston, that she's going to lose her whole career. Yeah. And I, I'm sure and she's, she's younger. Yeah. And I'm sure she's, she's also worried you know? about this idea that we all have that, you know, the South has two speeds, you know, slow and slower. So I'm sure that that's that's <laughs> that's not true anymore. Actually, is that yeah? So tell us about that. Has that really changed that's a lot? Reputation. <laughs> yeah, oh, but yeah. that is the reputation. That's what we think up here. So tell us the real truth. Well, I mean, Charleston's a very cosmopolitan city. You know, in fact, I think every other person who you meet now, when you go out to like you know museum events or whatever kind of cultural thing you might be doing, is someone who lived in New York at one time. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, so there are a lot of pe- a lot, a lot, a lot of people are retiring to Charleston. Now, why? So you now split your time between the Northeast and South Carolina, your beloved South Carolina, correct? Yes, I do. Now, why didn't you move down there full time? Well, because I've got a husband. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still married, right? And he's still working, you know, so until he retires, I really can't do that if I want to stay married. (laughs) It's kind of hard to be married if you're doing something a thousand miles away, right? So we go back and forth all the time. And he loves it, too. In fact, he was just there. Last weekend with a friend of his, um, staying at our, our house on Sullivan's Island, and I was in New Jersey working. Yeah. So there, there's a switch. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah, so that's working out. Yeah. Now, yeah, it's working out great. Another broad question, but all of these questions relate to this, the story in All Summer Long and, and the challenges that the, the two protagonists face. What role do you believe money plays in happiness? A lot. I mean, it's it's terrible to say that. I mean, I'm not 
saying you have to have a billion dollars to be happy. That's ridiculous. But, you know, if you can't pay your bills, it's, you know, my mother used to always say, you know, when you run out of money, love flies out the window. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a misery um, when you have to choose between, um, you know, books for your children and dinner on the table or rent or a trip to the doctor or groceries, you know. So I think it's terrible. You have to be able to, to maintain the standard of living you can afford. Um, and as long as you can pay your bills, I think that's, you know, that's the ticket. But boy, when you're broke, it's awful. Yeah. Awful. You know? Uh, yep. And mm. an, another broad question. Do you believe in second chances? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, who, who are we giving a second chance here to? Well, I'm not going to uh, give, give it away. Bad boy to the bad boy in the book? Yeah, you're going to have to read the book to, to uh, know yeah. why I asked that particular well, you know, question. I think you get a second chance once, right? Got it. You know, and for, I mean, for sure. And, you know, that's what, that's what being civilized is all about, right? You have to forgive people and, and move on, let things go. And, you know, so she gives this fellow a second chance. But I can tell you, you know, if he, if he blows it this time, she's going to clean his clock. <laughs> she will clean his clock, too. Yeah, I like that. You get a second chance once. Don't take it for granted yeah. and don't blow it. That's right. Now, let's talk about you a little bit. You worked in fashion in Atlanta and New York City, and then you moved to New Jersey after the birth of your son. And as we said, you split the time now. What made you um, make the transition from the fashion industry to working as a writer? Well, there was a, there was a hiatus in between. You yeah. know, I was always I was always a writer. I mean, I started my school newspaper when I was in the third grade. Oh, you know, so <laughs> I know that's a little known fact. I know. Okay, mimeograph. It was done on a mimeograph. I remember. Long yep. ago, this was. Oh God, to smell that purple ink, I love it. I could smell it right now thinking about it. But um, you know, when we moved from well, we um, actually it was my daughter who was born first, and we moved to New Jersey when she was about nine months old because my husband's business is in New Jersey, so it made good sense, right? So um, we did that. I began to do volunteer work, and I did a lot, a lot, a lot of community volunteer work. I sat on a lot of boards um, that had to do with the arts and education in New Jersey, including. Um, the State Arts Council for about eight years. And so I raised a lot of money for the arts and education. And then my mother passed away and I wanted to buy my mother's house. And I realized I'd given up my career, you know, and in the meanwhile, another child was born, my, our son was born, and um, I had no money. Yeah. You know, so I had to ask my husband for it. And he said, you know, why in the world would I want to buy your mother's house and, and spend every weekend you know, down there listening to your crazy family tell the same stories over and over again. You know, meanwhile, his family tells the same stories over and over again. My family's mostly dead at this point. It's God's anyway. So, um, so I said, well, that's it. I'm going back to work. And around that time, I had just read a novel that was so terrible that it had been on the New York Times list for ages. And I said, oh, my Lord, I could, I can do this. So at the same time, I was taking a course in creative writing at a local college, just like for the fun of it. And um, I said, that's it, man. I'm writing a book. I sat down and wrote Sullivan's Island, oh, which my. is kind of a miracle because you're not supposed to be able to do that. You know, you're supposed to go to the Iowa workshop, get an MFA, whatever. But I didn't do any of that. And so I wish I had. I mean, it would have been a great, great, you know, lesson for me. That's for sure. I would have well, you, it. you saved us all time. And then you just you got back to writing your next novel. So we appreciate that, that you didn't slow down with you know, <laughs> the Iowa's workshop. No. And, and yeah, once it started, you know, once I started writing, it was like opening the floodgates. And I've just I've had a blast doing this, you know, because I I was really looking for, for something 
to read that I wanted to read when I didn't want to read serious fiction. Got it. You know, I wanted something that had a lesson in it, had some facts in it, learn something and entertain me. Yeah. You know, I wanted to laugh. So anyway, so that's that's how it all, that was the genesis of my, my new career. Well, you, you <laughs> so accomplished. I think, I think I published, yeah, oh, listen, please, I'm so tired. Um, <laughs> 17, 70, I just started my 18th novel. Wow. Imagine. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. So tell us a little bit about your, your writing habits. And sort of your where do you sit? Like, where do you sit? And I always like to have the view from the desk. So tell us about the view from your desk. In my my desk, I look at the wall. I look at the I look at a fireplace that has a mirror over it that looks back outside. Because okay. if I had a, a view of looking outside all the time, I can't get any work done. Okay. I mean, when I go to when I go to South Carolina, there's the the harbor is in front of my office which is unbelievably beautiful. But I have to close the Venetian blinds. Really? Because I'll sit there and daydream. Yeah, I'll just yeah, daydream yeah. all day long instead of getting down to work. Yeah, you have to focus. So, you know, and it is work. I mean, I get up every morning and take a shower and get dressed and do the Times crossword puzzle and have breakfast and clean up the kitchen. And I come upstairs and, and go to work. Yep. You know, so like everybody else in the world, except I just have an easier commute. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, who so. who are, who is your first reader? Who do you first give your pages to my editor Uh uh-huh okay i mean yeah i mean i don't when i was writing my second book plantation i remember i had the first 10 pages written and i thought it was so lyrical you know this is what i was just starting to write i was so in love with writing right so i mean i still am but it's different now you know all these many years later but I, I took it to my husband and I said, I want you to just listen to this. And he said, okay. So I read four or five pages to him and he said, wait, whoa, 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 where are we going here? I said, that's it. You will never hear another one of my books out of my mouth. Really? You cut <laughs> him off? It. And you really just... I cut him right off. Has he noticed that he's been cut off or does he not care? It's all right. He doesn't care. You know, he's, he's listen, he's he's a great guy and he's very very supportive of my career because he also works like a maniac and he travels an awful lot. So, um, you know, it's good that I have something to occupy me. Yeah. So, so you've published 17 novels and you've, so you've been in the publishing business for a number of years. Tell us what still remains sort of surprising slash delightful about the publishing process and tell us what continues to drive you batty about the publishing process. Oh gosh! I mean, the wonderful thing is the collaborative effort. You know, I, mean, I write I write my first draft of my manuscript and I give it to my editor, and she, you know, delights in it like I do and loves it because we love all these characters, right? It's just like making up new friends and new worlds every time I write a new book. And um, she says, you know, but if you did this and this, you know, if you would really strengthen your story. And I'm like, ah, you know what? You're right. Let's try that. And so then it becomes collaborative, you know, and. Um, then it goes, of course, to the copy editor who, you know, let's, reminds me how I'll never understand in my whole life the long list of compound words that I don't know. Somebody should buy me a compound word dictionary for my birthday this year, I think. But um, <laughs> so, and and then then it gets read by so many people at Harper Collins, and everybody weighs in with an opinion. Which at that point, I don't care, you know, because I'm done with what I guess what you would perceive as probably the creative or artistic side of it. And now I'm looking for a story that my readers are going to really enjoy, taking that story to the next level, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, some sometimes books have um, more commentary 
on the, you know, from the uh, peanut gallery than other years. But, you know, that that's what I enjoy. I know, I know they've got my back. Yeah. You know, and they've got my back, not just on producing the best story possible, but in every other area of, you know, what I have to do for my job as well. Mm-hmm. What, what don't I like about it? Um, oh. You know, it's a tough business, right? And it's a, it's a very, it's hard work. I mean, I think people don't understand what it is. I mean, they, they sort of um, think maybe of authors as people who put on, you know, beautiful bathrooms with marabou <laughs> sit around eating chocolate and dreaming up romantic stories. And I mean, first of all, I don't write romance. I mean, there's always a little romance in my book because I, I like romance with everything. Um, but um, I think people don't understand how hard it is. And yep. it is hard. It's very, very taxing. I go on the road for, you know, three to four weeks every year, and then probably another two or three weeks of, of book-related things during the year. Um, you know, I sign thousands and thousands of sheets of paper so that people can have uh, first edition signed books, like in the Northwest, where I seem to never go on book tour for whatever reason. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, you know, it's nice. So that I do a lot of other things and speaking engagements and um, I help other writers and, you know, I do a lot of blurbing of other people's books. And, yeah, you're, you know, it's, an, it's, I'm busy. Yeah, exactly. Well, you're particular, I think that you're particularly engaged with your fans, which I know that they love. Um, but, you know, some, some authors are a little bit less so. So tell me. Let me tell you something. Yes. I, got, I had the best looking, smartest, most well-groomed, sophisticated <laughs> readers of anybody. They're, they're the coolest women. Like, you wouldn't mind living next door to any of them. Yeah. Normally, you know, when somebody approaches me to talk to me at a book signing, they look just like my sister or my best friend. Right, right. You know, and they say, listen, you know that story about, you know, cleaning the toilet with that toothbrush? Well, let me tell you what I did <laughs> to my ex-husband. And then they tell me, so we crack up, you know, so it's fun. <laughs> so tell me, what was the last book you had a conversation about and what did you say? Not my book, but somebody else's book. Yeah, just any any book that you've been talking about recently for any reason. Well, I just I just read The Nest. You know, oh, I read tell that us, yeah. Before it came out. Oh man, I love The Nest. Love The Nest. I hate The Nest. You know, I mean, it's really, people are contemptible and they are wonderful. Right. You know? but, and I think the thing you love about a story like that is it's unforgettable. Yep. So and I enjoy, I, I howled with laughter reading that book. It was very very a lot of fun. A lot of fun. And this is my last question. It's a corny one, but I ask it anyway. Were you to be banished to a desert island and you were allowed to take three books, what three books oh. would you take? Oh, well, I'd take the Bible, that's for sure, because I'd need hope. Um, you know, other than that, gosh, I don't know. You know, maybe, I don't know. You know, maybe a great book of poetry, um, you know, and, and a book about living on, living on in the wild. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> like, how do how do I catch a fish? How do I do that? Right? So, probably some instructional manual. You know, maybe the whole Earth catalog. That's a good one. Well, Dorothea yeah. Benton Frank, thank you so much for stopping by and picking up the phone to speak to us about all summer long. We we encourage everybody to go to a bookstore. You can buy the audiobook, the ebook, or the hardcover. May thirty first, all summer long. Dorothea Benton Frank. Thanks. Great pleasure. Hey, listeners, let us know what you would do if you were our protagonist, Olivia Ritchie, and you'd promised your spouse to trade north for south. You can tweet us at HA Presents using the hashtag all summer long. <laughs> <laughs>
Look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.